Good morning. Welcome to North Park. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very excited to be back with you all this morning. I was actually away the last couple of weeks. So last week I was back in Chicago. I in the first service I almost said I was back home in Chicago. That's not true, guys. Well, so I was visiting this foreign land called Chicago, performing a wedding for a couple of friends that I know from a past life. And the week before that, I was preaching at our site in Stratford. But I am very excited to, to be with all of you this morning and to continue in our series in the book of Colossians, which we have titled, Setting Our Sights on Jesus. And I do believe and pray and hope that throughout this series, you've kind of felt that, that that's the call of this book. And that's what we've been trying to do is to truly push one another to look to Jesus, to rest in him. And as we look at our text today, the text that Kado just read for us, that truly is what I want to be calling on all of us to do once again. I want to be calling on us to set our sights on him. But I want to make sure that we all understand really what, not just I mean by that, but what Paul means by that, but the scriptures mean by that. That to set our sights on Jesus Christ is not merely to include him in our lives or to even just invite him into our lives. It's not to actually just add him to what we are already doing. You know, the call of the book of Colossians, the call of the scriptures, is to set our sights on Jesus so fully that our whole lives, everything about ourselves, would be rooted in him, would be built on him. Because if we don't do that, this is really what our text is about, if we just try to kind of add Jesus in, make him simply part of our vision of life, that we're already living, then we are actually in serious danger of missing him. Kind of having his name there, but not having him truly there. Because what I have to show you this morning is that because of who Jesus is, because of how remarkable he is, because of what he has done, we are all called to set our sights so fully on him that we root our lives in him, we build our lives in him so that we would not be pulled away by any other rival vision of life. Okay, that's, that's what I want to be, kind of the message that we're looking at here as we look at chapter two. But let me pray first, ask for God's help, and then let's, let's dive into the text. So pray with me first. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the one that we just sang about, the one that we just encouraged one another to behold. And I pray, Lord, that in your mercy, in your grace, Right now, your spirit would enable me to help us all, including myself, do that. To behold Jesus Christ. To behold one who is so much more magnificent, so much greater than anything we could possibly imagine, and that we would behold him to such a degree or that we would not be swayed by the things of this world that sound good, that seem to make sense. So please right now, God, in your mercy and your grace, would you please use me that we would have an experience here of looking to Jesus, but one that would not just remain here, one that would push out into the rest of London, Lord, as we would live for him, we'd build our lives on him, root our lives in him. We do that for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now as we begin here, you may have noticed that I chose to have verses six through seven read along with verses 8 through 20, 23. Really, 8 through 23 actually is our text this week. But I wanted to have 6 through 7 read, even though Pastor Matt last week walked us through 
2, 1 through 7. So we've really actually talked about those verses already. But I did this because our text today, okay, 8 through 23, is continuing the argument of the text that Matt preached on last week. And so I wanted to make sure that we really saw this in context. Because again, if you think through what we've been looking at so far in the book of Colossians, we have seen that Paul, the Apostle Paul, this one set aside by God for the sake of bearing witness to Jesus Christ, even suffering for the sake of others knowing Jesus Christ, that he wrote this letter to the Colossians, which was a church that he didn't personally know. Okay, he had not been to this church. He obviously knew about it, so he wrote the letter. But he had not actually been there. He didn't know the people personally, but he was a little bit worried about them. And so he wrote to encourage them. And in particular, he wants to encourage them to know how remarkable Jesus Christ is. He wants them to grasp that Jesus, this man who walked the earth and was killed as a criminal, as we sang it, but was killed on a cross and then rose again, is the source, goal, and savior of all creation. That all things were made by him. That all things exist for him. And that all are offered redemption through his death on the cross. But as Matt showed us last week, the reason he is doing this, the reason Paul is exalting Jesus so much, is because Paul wants to make sure the Colossians build their lives on Jesus and nothing else. And he is concerned that they're going to be swayed by arguments that seem plausible to them and so swayed away from Christ by these teachings if they do not see how truly amazing Jesus is. And so he's trying to help them see how glorious Jesus Christ is so that nothing would pull them away, that nothing would truly compare. He's not trying to just defeat the arguments. He wants to kind of blow the arguments away by saying, look at who Jesus is. So why would you look away? Why would you let anything pull us away from the sufficiency and the exclusivity of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? That, that's part of what Matt talked about last week when looking at 2, 1 through 7, and it's what our entire text is essentially about today. But as we dive in here, I want to begin by reading in verse 6 again so we can kind of see the flow of thought that Paul has here and how much he's emphasizing Jesus Christ. Okay, so look with me, starting in verse 6, and it should, be, it should come up here on the screen. It says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Okay, so let's think about what he is saying here. In verses 6 through 7, he calls on the Colossians to continue to follow Jesus just as they first accepted him as Lord. In other words, just as you came to see and accept that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the king. Okay, when he says this, what he doesn't mean is just as you came to accept him into your heart or accept him as Lord of your life. No, he's saying just as you came to see how cosmic he is, that he's the Lord, that he is the king, that he is the one that every ruler bows down to. He is the source, goal, and savior of the whole world. Just as you came to think him was that remarkable, so continue to follow him and not someone or something else. Yes, be rooted in him and build your lives on him. That's the positive call that Paul finishes last week's text giving us. 
Since you see that Jesus is the king, the Lord over all things, let your lives completely be rooted and built on him. But then verse 8, which is the beginning of our text today, is then the negative call. It's the flip side of that. It's what not to do. It's don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body, so you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is ahead over every rule and authority. And so you see, our text begins by basically issuing the other side of the same coin in verses 6 through 7. Jesus is Lord. All the fullness of God is present in him. Every ruler, every authority is under him. That is the confession of the church, and it has been since the beginning. That is our confession here at North Park. And since that is true, all creation, all things, every human life was made by him and is for him, and he died for all, so that he truly is the Lord over all. Therefore, we should all be rooted in him and build our lives on him, and we should not let some other philosophical vision of life pull us away from him. Okay, that's the message as we begin our text here. Okay, I really want us to make sure that we understand the seriousness of this call and actually the persuasiveness of these other philosophical views of life. You see, when Paul says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that don't come from Christ. On the one hand, he doesn't think they're necessarily bad arguments. That's why he's warning. They're actually going to be persuasive is what he says back in verse 4. But we also need to see he is using very intense language there. Okay, he's not just concerned that the Colossians are going to kind of listen to these different philosophical views of life and so make a couple mistakes, believe a couple wrong things. No, his language here shows that he is concerned that the Colossians are going to be captured. They're going to be taken captive, that they've been freed in Jesus and they will walk back into slavery. They'll actually walk away from him. He is concerned that they are literally going to be led away from Christ because of these philosophical teaching. And this, this is emphasized again when we look at the end of our text, verses 16 through 23, which give us a picture of what these teachings really are. Okay, so I'm going to read that entire section. It's a long section, but stick with me here. Verses 16 through 23, it says this. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holidays or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. But these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings, but things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desire. Okay, so again, here we get a glimpse into what these teachings were that the Colossians were dealing with. And obviously there's kind of some form of legalism that's here. But if we really get kind of what's going on here, what this actually is, is not just kind of legalism, this kind of random legalism. What's actually going on here is that Paul is warning against what's often called syncretism, which is when we take one belief system and we mix it with another. 
Essentially, we take one form of religion or one kind of thing in culture, and it gets amalgamated or combined with another. That is really what Paul is warning against here. So there seem to be these false teachers that were coming in and telling the Colossians that in addition to Jesus, you needed to observe certain kinds of rituals and ways of life. There's actually nothing in here about them denying who Jesus is. Not, that's not what they're doing. But they're saying, okay, that's fine. Believe in Jesus. Think that he's the king. Believe he's your savior. And then follow these rules. Observe these festivals. Don't eat this food. Don't touch these things. This is the way you have to live if you are going to follow Jesus Christ. And it will help you get rid of these evil desires. You see, Paul is saying, no. These teachings that you are hearing, I know they sound good but they aren't actually rooted in Jesus. They are actually built on him. They may sound good. They may sound like they make sense. And because they don't write out, don't outright deny Jesus, they may even seem harmless. But what they are doing is adding Jesus into their assumed vision of reality rather than truly building on Jesus, who is reality itself. They're taking him and fitting him into the way that they think you're supposed to live. And so Paul is saying, actually, they're changing him. They're altering him. So to follow these teachings then, it's not to actually have Jesus. It's to make him fit with some other vision. It's syncretism. It is to be captured, to be taken away from Christ, which is why at the end of verse 18, he says, their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head, the body. In other words, these teachers, these ways of life, they may sound good, and they probably have very good intentions. And they may have a place for Jesus. But they're not actually connected to him. They're separated from him. And this is precisely why Paul, I think, wrote this letter in part, because that can be really sinister. That can be a very subtle way to push you away from Christ. And so Paul wanted the Colossians to take this seriously. And it's why today I think that we, we really need to take this seriously as well. We too need to be asking ourselves, whose vision of life are we truly following? Are we truly rooted in Jesus? Are we truly building our lives on Jesus? Or are we altering him and changing him to fit him into the reality that we already have? Whose vision of life are we truly giving ourselves to? Is it something that's built on him or some other vision, even if it has space for his name? Because, okay, guys, this threat, this threat of syncretism, of philosophical ideologies or religious teachings that mix with Jesus, but in reality take us away from him, that threat, I would say, is just as large today as it was back in Paul's day. In fact, there's many theologians, many missiologists, many cultural analysts who kind of look at our culture today and say the threat's actually probably larger than it was back in Paul's day because we live in the West, which was birthed amidst Christianity. So we have very clever and subtle ways as to where to put Jesus in a way that makes us feel safe. And because of that, I think we really need to think about this. And so I want to ask the question right now, how does syncretism even take place? How does this even happen? And the answer is kind of obvious. It seems really simple, but it is important to know this. It happens because it just seems to make sense to those who do it. Because all of us have philosophical visions of life. Even if you don't realize that, we all do. We all think that there's right and wrong ways 
to live life. And the easiest thing to do with Jesus is just to kind of tack him on top of that, to make him fit into that. So, so, so think, about, think about a first century Jew who's a Pharisee, okay? So they believe that serving God is done through having your identity as part of the Jewish people. So if you're a man, you have to be circumcised because circumcision is really but identifying you as separated and part of the people of God. And then you need to strictly obey the law, okay? The good life is to be identified as part of the people of God and to completely, strictly obey the law. And then along comes Paul, proclaiming that Jesus is their Messiah, that he is the one sent by their God to save them. He's their savior. He's the fulfillment of the law who has died for them once for all as the fulfillment of all the sacrifices in the law and who gives them a new identity as his own, so that he is their true Lord. What's the most natural way? What's the easiest way for a first century Jew who's a a Pharisee to actually take and appropriate Jesus and to believe in him? The most natural way would be to say, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one sent to forgive us. He's the one sent to fulfill the law. So that we would all get circumcised and strictly follow the law. And that is exactly what's happening in the New Testament times. That's what the whole debate around circumcision is really about. Can you be a Christian and follow the Jewish Messiah without being identified anew as someone in the Jewish people and then strictly following the law? That's what happened. It was syncretism. It was fitting Jesus into a vision of reality rather than building on reality itself. Think about a modern-day Hindu. This is something that missionary Leslie Nubian actually often talks about, that when he was a missionary in India, many Hindus would worship Jesus on December 25th as part of their pantheon of gods. So they'd hear the message about this God who's come that loves them and say, okay, we should worship him as part of every other God that we worship. And we can easily look at that and say, okay, well, that's just kind of fitting him in. And that's what it is. It's syncretism. But we are in danger of this as well. It's just way easier to see it when you're outside the culture looking at another one. We are in danger here as well, but how? You see, it can be tempting in our Western culture to think that we are not in danger of this because unlike first century Jews or modern day Hindus, we live in a culture that doesn't seem to have an overarching religious vision of life that we all adhere to or that we're all supposed to adhere to. But the reality is that that is an absolute illusion. That is an illusion. We absolutely live in a culture that has a religious vision of life, even if we don't call it religion. For years, for years, sociologists and philosophers have been pointing out that in any given society or in any culture throughout history, every single one, because of our shared way of life, because humans interact with one another, do life together, those who live in those cultures and in those societies so deeply influence one another that they come to share an assumed philosophical or religious vision of life. Okay, and the key phrases there are those who live in those cultures share and assume this. They can't even necessarily articulate it. We might not be able to explain what it actually is, but we have deeply felt thoughts over what is actually the good life and what is not. Because what, and what that means is that all of us here, all of us, because we live in London, Ontario, in the Western world, we very likely have been so deeply influenced by our culture that we share not only with people in this room, but with everyone throughout our culture. We share an assumed vision of life. We share a vision of life that's so deeply embedded into us 
that we likely couldn't even articulate it in arguments. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. We feel that this is right because it's an assumption that's been put down into our guts, into who we think you are supposed to be or feel you're supposed to be. And there's a lot of different names for this. Okay, sociologist Peter Berger calls these plausibility structures. Michael Polanyi calls them fiduciary frameworks. And Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian, so he probably got it right. He calls them social imaginaries, okay? And while there's some nuances between those three different phrases, I bring them up because I'm just trying to say, I'm not making this up. Okay, this is a real thing. In any given culture, we have deeply embedded beliefs that are not merely ideas. They're assumptions. They're knee-jerk reactions for how we think and feel all life should be lived, what the good life is, and what a bad life would be. And we share these assumptions essentially with those around us. And so let's get at what ours is. I want to do that through talking about what I think is one of the most common questions we ask. And it's probably, in my opinion, it's the most common question that we ask children. And now I could be wrong about that. I asked Josh Black, who is our youth pastor, so maybe he would know better. What's the most common question we ask kids? And he said, how was your day? And I was like, oh, come on. I think the most common question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, let's get some amen. Sorry, that's the most common question. Okay, that's the question that's asked everywhere. What do you want to be when you grow up? What's implied in that question? Of course, there is the implication, and this is an amazing thing, that the child will grow up. I mean, that's something that our society could actually assume that basically no society through history has ever been able to assume up until recently, until we've had the medical advancement. That's an amazing thing to think. But there's also an implication in that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? that what someone does with their life is entirely up to them. It is entirely their choice. In fact, in our culture, we assume that all people should get to choose what they do, that my children should all be able to choose what they do. And I certainly as their father, we have a suspicion of families, I certainly as their father, nor anyone else should be able to interfere with that choice in any way. It's all up to them. And really it's all on them to figure it out. And what criteria, what criteria do we believe, do we feel we should use for making that choice? Personal happiness, personal fulfillment, what you feel will make you feel happy. You decide what you do based on what you feel will make you feel happy. And this is because we feel that what you do should be an expression of who you feel you are, which again can only be defined personally and individually. No one else can tell you who you are. So what you do it's defined by who you are. And who you are is only defined by you, which means you have to look at yourself, look inside yourself to discover who you are, that you can know what makes you happy, and so that you can know what you should do. That is essentially the philosophical view of life that our society shares and assumes. That's the good life. Know who you are so you can live it out. And while you can go and kind of find, like, go through the history of why we think this is essentially it's a combination of Rousseau, Nietzsche, and Freud. We don't need to read any of those philosophers. You don't need to read any of those philosophers. All you need to do is watch Moana. That's all you got to do, guys. You said I watched the Disney movie Moana. Because seriously, if, if you which, by the way, I love that movie. You're going to find out how, how much I love that movie. Because I'm going to quote, pretty long quote here. But the grandma, the grandmother, this Polynesian grandmother sings to her granddaughter, you are your father's daughter. Stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And when that voice starts to whisper, to follow the farthest star, 
Moana, that voice inside is who you are. So your tradition does not define you. Your family doesn't define you. Where you're from doesn't define you. You can mind those things, mind what they say, but you really want to know who you are. The only way, Moana, is you have to curve in and look at yourself. Tell me what's inside of you. That's it. That's the assumed philosophical view of life that we are supposed to live into. Because we got to think about what that means. And, and I want to be careful here because my goal here is not to like demonize every single aspect of Western culture's view of life. Yeah, that wasn't the purpose of that. But I gave that sketch of how we view life because I wanted to highlight that the philosophical view of life that our culture pushes us to assume and that we so easily adopt that we feel deep down inside of us is in reality that life is about you. The purpose of your life is all about you. It is the self curved in on itself. You being happy, you work, you do things for the sake of yourself. I mean, the reason we do our jobs is to fulfill our own happiness. I've had people, we've adopted two kids and I've had people say to me, absolutely seriously, that, wow, that's so good for you. That must make you feel so good. And that's a pretty common thing to say. Whenever I'm feeling bad for myself, I kind of volunteer so I can kind of feel better, which means it's nothing to do with the other person. It's actually an act that we do for ourselves. But I say that knowing that in part, even in the decision to adopt, I thought this will make me feel good. Like this will, this will be good because that's so often what we feel we should be living for, for ourselves to feel good for the sake of our own fulfillment, which means that life, true life, the good life is fulfilled through consumerism, through consumption, through getting things for ourselves. And we consume basically everything. We consume other people for the sake of ourselves. When I say consumerism, I don't just mean the accumulation of stuff through purchases, though I certainly am including that. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the definition of consumerism is the protection and the promotion of the interests of the consumer. And that's what I mean. We live in a culture, and I know there's very good intentions to this, because we think it'll make people happy, but we live in a culture in which everything is about protecting and promoting us as individuals to have, to enjoy, to consume whatever we feel will make us happy. This is why there's a really fascinating book called Why Liberalism Failed by a professor named Patrick Deneen. He's a professor at Notre Dame. But in this book, he basically explains that because our, our culture's like view of life at base is just the personal uh, feelings of fulfillment, personal feelings of, of, of happiness, this is why the political left almost always wins the moral argument while the political right wins the economic. Because whatever the, the politics, we are still working with this same philosophical vision of life. And if life is all about my personal definition of happiness, then you can't tell me what to do. But if life is all about my personal definition of happiness, then I need as much money as possible so that I can chase it. Whatever I think will make me feel happy. It's why both sides constantly, both sides justify exploitation. The exploitation of the earth for the sake of money, the exploitation of the poor for the sake of money, the exploitation of people such as in pornography for the sake of pleasure. Because life's about you. It's about me. And nothing, nothing should stand in the way. But while I know this can sound good, it can sound like it, make it, it will make you happy and it almost sounds cruel to argue against that in any kind of way. This is a vision of life that we need to make sure we are not captured by. And I, I pray that we are taking this seriously because this will 
take us away from Jesus. We will tack him onto the back of this. Guys, this vision of life, I feel like, has seeped into the church in the West. It has, and we've simply added Jesus' name onto it. It's why it's not hard to find people who believe in Jesus, but live lives almost completely indistinguishable from everyone else in culture. Living for money, living for sex, for success, for achievement for themselves. It's why it's not hard to find people who go to church, but seem to live entirely for the accumulation of wealth and the comfort of their family and almost nothing else. It's why we can so easily treat church as if it's all about what do I get out of this? It's a consumer experience. It's why we've created a culture of celebrity pastors, many of whom were able to use their platform for their personal advantage. It's why it's so easy to find people who preach that Jesus loves you and wants you to be rich. It's why I have friends who believe God is fine with them, leaving their wives, or having sex with whoever they want, because why would God ever stand in the way of what they believe will make them happy? It's why it's so hard, I feel like, in the West to find churches taking a hard stance against things like greed, against the exploitation of the earth, against covetousness, or the God of comfort and pleasure. You so often, and it's so easy to slip into this, we have simply baptized our culture's view of life with some Christian language. And listen, I feel this deeply. Okay, I'm not standing up here pretending as if this is just you guys out there and you need to figure this out. I feel this, I feel it within myself. So often, I curve in and think that if I just get more stuff, I will get more comfort and that's what I need. This past week, my wife and I finally received and accepted an offer on our house in Chicago. But then two days later, we received another one. And it was higher. And not like crazy higher, but it, it would make a difference. And we could accept it. We could. But to do so, we would need to break the contract with the people we had signed with before, which opens us up to possible legal problems, though they're pretty unlikely. But more than that, as I've processed this, it opens us up to lying for the sake of more money. I had promised the first buyers that I would sell to them for the agreed upon price, breaking the contract because there's more money available. I don't believe is what Christ would have me do because he is sufficient. But I assume that many of you in this room feel exactly like I did. Or you're like, ah, you could probably find a way around this. You'd probably do it. But honestly, what reasoning would I give other than that it's more money? And why would more money mean that I should do that? That argument only makes sense in a culture in which somehow more wealth has come to intrinsically be thought of as better. We just assume that way. I know plenty of my friends, like in Chicago, we kind of change jobs and they say, well, I had to, it was a higher paycheck as if somehow more money just brings with it morality that you have to now do it now. But is that the way of Christ who says he is enough for us? This is what I feel within myself. It's why I really wanted to accept that other offer. And it's why I wanted to justify getting it. Because all of us, myself so included in this, want to do this and feel the need to do it because we believe it will bring as happiness. Okay, the remedy to this, 
the remedy to feeling this way is not, and I think this is really important, the remedy to this is not to just flip it around and say, well, we shouldn't then have a consumeristic perspective, let's just have a minimalistic one. The remedy for this is not to say, okay, well, let's just make sure we don't do that. Let's just make sure we don't live for ourselves, don't consume too much, don't make too much money. Because that's just another form of what Paul is actually pushing against here to say that, oh, the way you have to follow Jesus is now to be minimalistic. It sounds good. It seems like it would make sense. But the only remedy for this, guys, is Jesus Christ actually knowing him. Because again, why are these rival visions of life so tempting to us? Why are we so tempted by these things? I would say it's the exact same reason the Colossians were tempted. It's because we truly struggle to believe that Jesus is as glorious, is as remarkable, is as awesome as the New Testament claims that he is. We struggle to believe that God loves us so much and has actually given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. And because we don't believe that, we are constantly tempted to look somewhere else in order to find what we need. You see, this is why in our texts, when Paul calls on us not to be swayed by these different visions of light, even though he's already talked so much in the Colossians about what Christ has done, Paul can't help himself. He has to do it again. And so he says here in verse 11, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. And okay, that is such a significant thing to say. As I said, as I said earlier, circumcision was about an identity marker. It's about separating you as a different person, as a person of the people of God. But Paul is saying, listen, that actually happened in Jesus Christ. Christ has given you that passport. Christ has given you this different identity. Paul is saying, you don't need physical circumcision. You have a, a new identity. That is given to you in Jesus. You don't need physical circumcision, a physical marker of identity. And for us today, you don't need to figure it out for yourself. There is one who tells you who you are. There is one who says that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you are mine, and it is Jesus. You've been given an identity in him. As it says in verse 12, you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But God made you alive with Christ where he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Yes, your identity, your worth, all of it is affirmed. All of it is found in the one who is the source and the goal and the savior of all creation. If you don't know who you are, I would beg you to hear from Christ, to, from Christ today, say, you are mine and you are loved. I, I, I decided just to do this in the first service and it feels weird doing it, but I'm going to quote Hawk Nelson. Probably a lot of you don't know who that is, but it's a Christian band. At least they were. A number of years ago, my kids went to a vacation Bible school. They got this like Christian CD of just kids' worship songs. And so we're driving, listening to it. I was probably annoyed most of the time being like, oh my gosh. But then this one song came on by Hawk Nelson called Drops in the Ocean. And then my kids were like, dad, why are you crying up there? But it's because the chorus of the song says, if you want to know how far my love can go, just how deep, just how wide, 
If you want to know how much you mean to me, look at my hands and look at my side. You see, all of us, I feel like, are so tempted when trying to figure if God loves us to look at our circumstances, to look inside ourselves, to look at how good we are and how successful we are. And we can't find it often. We're like, oh, we're not good enough. But if you really want to know, look at Christ's hands that were pierced for you. Look at his side that was stabbed for you. Look at one who gave you everything. Because in him, you are complete. That's what it says in verse 10. In Christ, you're given a new identity. In Christ, you've been completely forgiven. And so completely that literally nothing, nothing can be held against you. For the record of wrongs has been nailed to the cross. And Jesus, by dying on the cross, has not just disarmed these ways of life and said they have no power, but he's also shamed them. As he's shown you, that's where they take you. If you want to live apart from me, I know it will feel like life, but ultimately apart from me, it leads to throwing the only righteous and loving man we've ever seen up on a cross. But if you want to live in me, I know it will look like death because you'll see me on a cross. But in the end, you will see me burst forth from that grave. So it will give you life. You do not need to look somewhere else to be complete. Christ makes you complete. You do not need to look somewhere else for your identity. Jesus gives it to you. You do not need to look somewhere else for your worth. Jesus says you are worth dying for. You do not need to look somewhere else for God's love. This has been poured out for you on the cross. So may we know that. May we stand on that. And we'll dive more into what does that really look like next week? How do we actually do this? How does we live this out? But today I want to just highlight again. May we set our sights on him. Because only Jesus can give us what we need. Only a holy God can give us that. And maybe we rooted in him and we build our lives on him. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your son. We thank you for the overwhelming, never-ending love that you have poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here, for my friends here, Lord, that just that do not feel that they are worth being loved, that don't know who they are, that are trying to figure out, that are racked with anxiety, trying to understand who are they, how can they actually live out what they're supposed to do. May they please, Father, right now, in your grace, feel the love of Christ. May you help them know that. And may we as a church, Lord, know how to give ourselves to others and love others so that they would actually see that they are worth so much. May we pour out ourselves for the sake of others. May we feel this so deeply, Lord, that this would be part of what we are doing on mission, loving others because you first loved us in Jesus Christ. May we know him. May we know you. May we stand in awe that the only one that can do this for us is a holy God, and he is the one who has done it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.